Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 47. With our book today, which I'm going to be showing here on the video, my, my copy is falling apart, um, but it is a, uh, it is a, not even a first edition, I think this is like a 35th edition uh, by Pocket Books of Pearl S. Buck's The Good Earth. Um, almost a biblical allegory written by the daughter of Christian missionaries to China, and it was the winner of the 1938 Nobel Prize for Literature. And so we are going to pull apart this 1938 winner today on the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit with our regular co-host here, Tom Libby. We're going to talk with, uh, with him about the good earth. We're going to talk a little bit about the literary life of Pearl S. Buck and what leaders can take from leading people through hard times, um, and in some cases, biblically hard times. From the good earth, I'm going to read directly our first selection for today. Uh, if I can get to it. Ah, yes, there it goes. Yes. Well, and this is one of those editions, folks, where the pages literally like literally are like like flaking off um, in my copy of the book. So we're going to be very delicate with it today. Mm -hmm. So it may take me a couple moments just to <clears throat> get my arms around the selections. But uh, from The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. It seemed to him, and this is Wang Lung, the, the main character, it seemed to him that during these next months, he did nothing except watch this woman of his. In reality, he worked as he always had. He put his hoe upon his shoulder, and he walked to his plots of land, and he cultivated the rows of grain, and he yoked the ox to the plow, and he plowed the western field for garlic and onions. But the work was a luxury. For when the sun struck the zenith, he could go to his house, and food would be there ready for him to eat, and the dust wiped from the table and the bowls and the chopsticks placed neatly upon it. Hitherto, he had had to prepare the meals when he came in, tired though he was, unless the old man grew hungry out of time and stirred up a little meal or baked a piece of flat unleavened bread to roll about a stem of garlic. Now, whatever there was, was ready for him, and he could seat himself upon the bench by the table and eat at once. The earthen floor was swept and the fuel pile replenished. The woman, when he had gone in the morning, took the bamboo rake and a length of rope, and with these she roamed the countryside, reaping here a bit of grass and there a twig or a handful of leaves, returning at noon with enough to cook the dinner. It pleased the man that they need buy no more fuel. In the afternoon, she took a hoe and a basket, and with these upon her shoulder, she went to the main road leading to the city, where mules and donkeys and horses carried burdens to and fro, and there she picked the droppings from the animals and carried it home, and piled the manure in the dooryard for the fertilizer for the fields. These things she did without a word and without being commanded to do them. And when the end of the day came, she did not rest herself until the ox had been fed in the kitchen and until she had dipped water to hold to its muzzle to let it drink what it could. And she took their ragged clothes and with thread, she herself spun it on a bamboo spindle from a wad of cotton she mended and contrived to cover the rents in their winter clothes. Their bedding she took into the sun on the threshold and ripped the coverings from the quilts and washed them and hung them upon a bamboo to dry. And the cotton in the quilts that had grown very hard and gray from years she picked over, killing the vermin that had flourished in the hidden folds and sunning it. Day after day, she did one thing after another until the three rooms seemed clean and almost prosperous. The old man's cough grew better and he sat in the sun by the southern wall of the house, always half asleep and warm and content. But she never talked to this woman. 
except for the brief necessities of life. Wang Lung watched her move steadily and slowly about the rooms on her big feet, watching secretly the stolid square face, the unexpressed half-fearful look of her eyes, and made nothing of her. At night, he knew the soft firmness of her body, but in the day, her clothes, her plain blue cotton coat and trousers covered all that he knew, and she was like a faithful, speechless serving maid, who was only a serving maid and nothing more. And it was not meet that he should say to her, why do you not speak? It should be enough that she fulfilled her duty. Sometimes, working over the claws in the fields, he would fall to pondering about her. What had she seen in those hundred courts? What had been her life, that life she never shared with him? He could make nothing of it. And then he was ashamed of his own curiosity and of his interest in her. She was, after all, only a woman. Pearl S. Buck, born Pearl Seidenstricker Buck, born June 26th, 1892, and died March 6th, 1973, um, was an American writer and novelist. And uh, much like uh, John Dos Passos, who we covered on the podcast, we covered his American trilogy uh, last year. You can go back and listen to those episodes. Pearl S. Buck is one of those authors that really should be read. I mean, for God's sake, she won the 1938 Nobel Prize for Literature, but she has fallen out of the canon. As a matter of fact, um, to be quite honest, I mean, <clears throat> I enjoy having Tom as our co-host here, and I think he's going to give us a lot of value today. But I'd reached out to try to find somebody who wanted to talk about Pearl S. Buck, and there was nobody who even remembered her. Hmm. She was born in West Virginia. Um and her parents took her as a four-month-old baby to China, where they were Christian missionaries. She spent most of her life before 1934 in Xinjiang with her parents and in Nanjing, later on with her first husband as an adult. Both of her parents felt strongly that the Chinese people they were seeking to bring Christianity to were their equals. They forbade the use of the word ha heathen in their house. And she was raised in a bilingual environment. She spoke fluent uh, Chinese, uh, tutored in English by her mother and in the local dialect by her Chinese playmates and in classical Chinese by a Chinese scholar named Mr. Kung. From 1914 to 1932, after marrying John Losing Buck, she served as a Presbyterian missionary. So she went back to the very same missionary work that her parents raised her in, and she came to, in the course of that work, doubt the need for foreign missions to China. As a matter of fact, one of the additions um, of uh, A Good Earth, or The Good Earth, um, published, gosh, back in the late 1940s, has an introduction um, from Pearl S. Buck, uh, where she writes that she doubts that the Chinese are going to need much help in the 20th century because they'll always have the land. She became an activist fundamentally later on in her life and she prom and a prominent advocate of the rights of women and of racial equality. She was woke before woke was a thing. And she wrote widely on Chinese and Asian cultures, becoming particularly well known for her efforts on behalf of Asian and mixed race adoption. Um, this book, the story that we are going to read from today, and hopefully leaders will be able to pull some lessons from this, The Good Earth, 
is an almost biblical tale, as I mentioned before, of farming, famine, poverty, of sudden wealth, and a man, Wang Lung, um, and his wife, Olan, uh, trying to hold on to human dignity in revolutionary times. One of the reasons I picked this book to read today on the podcast is because uh, unlike Virginia Woolf, who we read earlier this month, or Joan Didion, who we just recently read last week and played as it lays, Pearl S. Buck did not benefit from luxury ideas. Uh, she wasn't part of the elite like Virginia Woolf was. She also didn't have enough comfort to be cynical. Huh. And this is what happens when you go and experience a different culture. Uh, this is what happens when you go and experience different peoples, right? Um, when you travel, not merely inside of your own country, but when you go and live someplace else as an interloper, you begin to see that human beings are united by many, many things and are separated by very, very few. And in the times in which we live, I was recently listening to a podcast episode about China before we came on here with, uh, with Tom. Uh, there are some changes that are going to be happening in Asia over the next 20 to 25 years that are going to impact every single one of us here in America. And understanding that and having empathy for those changes is going to be critical for Americans and leaders, small organizations, medium-sized organizations, and large organizations to get right. Otherwise, well, we all know what goes in the blank at the end of that sentence. Welcome to the podcast today, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, and uh, very happy to be back. I, it's, I, I enjoy these uh, conversations with you, so <laughs> hopefully <you're, laughs> hopefully the audience enjoys them as well, but I, I certainly do. I, I think the audience does enjoy them. I've been getting good feedback um, on what we've been doing here. Um, let's talk a little bit about that idea of no one reads this author anymore. Let's start with that, because we kind of talked a little bit about this uh, off the air um, before we, uh, we kind of came on. Uh, maybe last week or so, but um, why does anybody read Pearl Buck anymore? I know you went and poked around, looked around at her, looked at some of her work, um, looked at the Wikipedia article I just quoted from with some of the details of her life. Um, I, I have, you know, I have a copy of The Good Earth. I can, of course, you know, send that to you if you're interested. But uh, um, you know, it seems like a book that you would enjoy. <laughs> and we talked about this, you know, and she also seems like a person who genuinely loved the people she was writing about and she wrote about them um in all of their foibles and all of their problems and all of their their uh, contradictions in a way that a person can only write about people who they are not necessarily genetically attached to but who they genuinely love and so how is it that that has not how is it nobody reads that uh, like 90 years later how has she fallen out of the canon how does that happen I, you know, it's weird too. Like, like you said, I, I kind of poked around in here a little bit and I, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I was looking for things about Pearl and, and uh, you know, and, and one of the things I found a couple of things I found interesting, mm -hmm. one of which was I found this thing from like uh, 1930 something or other, I forget what it was. I, and, and I, I probably should have been a little better prepared and been able to quote the exact source so that people would know but if you go i'm sure if you go google her and you, if you go down a little bit of a rabbit hole which most of us do on google i'm sure you'll find something along these lines but i, I found it fascinating that they were talking about how um she dispelled a lot of the stereotypes that yep. america felt about the chinese at that time that she was writing these books mm -hmm. however 
there was a secondary part of this that, that a lot of people felt like she was number one glorifying the stereotypes that were quote unquote accurate and i i say that because what we originally thought as a stereotype was something that she felt was an embedded part of their culture and and a lot of the critics and people around at the time frame thought that she was just glorifying them mm-hmm. and it wasn't it wasn't uh as clean as she was portraying it number one number two they also felt that she was creating new stereotypes types that didn't exist and that mm-hmm. was kind of shunned like people were mm-hmm. kind of shunning her a little bit so i think there was something in there that yeah. caused her to kind of fall out of fortune when it came to the literary world mm-hmm. um but other than that i can't put my finger on anything in her history or or you know from 1973 on that would say that people quote unquote shouldn't read her or there was nothing you know like i i kind of like one of the things that you know something that you had said where uh just a few minutes ago where you called her woke before woke was a thing because from everything i've read she was and why we're not reading her today is blows my mind as to why like we could especially in the environments that we're seeing today like we can learn something from the way that she approached things the way that she viewed these things the way and and, and <clears throat> not so much of it wasn't in in her mind and in the way that i looked at this anyway it wasn't this thought or premise of cultural appropriation didn't exist because she was so embedded in it right mm-hmm. like she yeah. lived and breathed the chinese culture so none of the chinese people that she was involved with felt like it was a cultural appropriation scenario mm-hmm. it felt like she was just part of the part and parcel for the the you know the the course and we don't do that today right like right. we don't see that today we see something that we think is from another culture and people vilify the person that's not that culture for using it or and we mm-hmm. don't stop and wonder or think maybe they got permission or right. <laughs> maybe they got you know, yeah. like, and I'll just give you a very simple example as I, I believe it's come up in this, in this podcast, podcast once or twice that I am mm-hmm. of Native American descent. Well, hey, son, if you're mm-hmm. not Native and your friend, me, is Native and I give you a gift of something and you wear it, how is that considered cultural appropriation? It's my gift to you, right? Because we're friends. Right. And I, my expectation is that you're going to wear it. I want you right. to wear it. I want you to talk. So, but we don't do that today, right? We would right. somebody would see you wearing a native piece or whatever I gifted you, and they'd just assume either A, you're a native, or B, you're wrong. Right. Because you're wearing it and you're not native. Why are you wearing that? That's cultural appropriation. So right. I, from her yeah. perspective, like I think we could learn a thing or two from her today. And I have no, I could not find any good reason why we don't read her today. I think I I think that <clears throat> she defies easy pigeonholing. And what accusing someone of cultural appropriation does is it allows you to dismiss them, dismiss their ideas, put them in a little tiny box, and you close up that box, and now you don't have to deal with the complication that just entered into your narrative, right? Right. It's like a little little virus gets inside, and and the inoculation for the virus of having to change, the inoculation against the virus of having to change, it's it's just... You just reject it. Just put it over yeah. there because it's too it's complicated. It's our Occam's razor of defense, right? There you go. The yes. simplest version is the easiest. So we're just going right. to vilify you, put you in a box. And we're going to, yeah, That's it's right. like our Occam's razor of defense. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then the other thing I think that flummoxes people about her. And you know what? 
I do talk about the, the theology of leadership um, on this podcast. And by theology, I want to be very clear. And I mentioned this a couple of times last year, but it always bears repeating for new people um, who are listening uh, or who are finding us. The theology of leadership means, it doesn't mean the Christian God. It means the idea that there is something transcendent in leadership and we should be studying that transcendent thing. We should be seeking to find that transcendent thing. The undefinable things that go beyond psychology or sociology or any of the hard sciences and go even beyond literature, right? The ineffable, such as it were. Okay. When we're talking about Pearl S. Buck, you can't get around the fact that she was a Christian missionary. You just can't get around that. You can't get around that. And we live in a time where uh, particularly in our American culture, um, I fundamentally believe we are becoming more paganistic in our outlook. And, and whether or not that's a good thing or bad thing is, is worthwhile and probably to discuss in, a, in another podcast. Um, and you can even disagree with my observations on that. That's fine too. Multiple interpretations for multiple things, right? Okay, let's go ahead and have that discussion. But we cannot deny that the tolerance for Christianity has declined over the course of time. We cannot deny that. That's inarguable. We see that in, 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 high, in hard metrics like church attendance, uh, youth church attendance among particular generations. We see that, right? And I think that that lack of um, patience for that part <clears throat> of her identity colors people's perceptions of her. And again, I, I think it I think the modern mind doesn't really know how to put that in a box. Um, so, so how could a person be a Christian and also be empathetic and write about these stereotypical <clears throat> situations or, or dispel these stereotypes, and yet they follow this religion that's highly exclusive? Okay. Or at least the perception is that it's highly exclusive. Um, you know, and, and I think that the modern mind struggles with that. I, I, I think, and I think the modern mind that's not exposed to transcendence at that level uh, or has to intellectually uh, wrestle with that, um, like I said, just puts it in a box. So I, I think that's part of it too. Um, and then I think a third part of it is, and and this was mentioned in a lot of the the research that I looked at. Um, at first, she was a feminist activist, but over the course of time, she's become less of a feminist icon. <laughs> like she doesn't get mentioned in the same breath as a Gloria Steinem, right? Yeah. Um, or even, um, or even um, other first wave feminists who were of her of her time. I mean, she was writing at a time when um, Catherine Porter was writing. She was writing at a time when Ernest Hemingway was writing. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who still gets read, John Passos, who we already mentioned. Like those were those were the beasts, you know, writing at her time, and she stood in with all of them and was able to to handle that. And yet, she's not part of. She's not part of that uh, pantheon. She doesn't make it up the top of the mountain. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I, I couldn't I couldn't find a good reason. I, I told you those two things that I, I saw that were pretty, yeah. uh, but I didn't I didn't think that was enough, quite honestly. But it, apparently, it's, <laughs> there might be something there. <laughs> well, you know the 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 Philadelphia Inquirer did a wrote an opinion piece or published an opinion piece. Um, back in 2000, and because I, I, I had found it and I wanted to look it up and reference it back in uh, June of last year. Um, and the headline is, um, in a time of racial division, remembering the multicultural focus of Pearl S. Buck. Um, so maybe that's starting to come back um, a little bit more. Uh, maybe there's been some more consideration for her. Um, 
There's also um, a biography of her by a woman named uh, Hillary Sperling um, called Pearl Buck in China, uh, Journey to the Good Earth, um, where it talks a little bit about her, um, her, her name, who she was, right, and the nature of her literary life and, um, and sort of rescuing her from, as was put in the article, the stink of literary condens condensation. <laughs> and then, um, and then um, interestingly enough, um, there was a, uh, there was a book that was written by a woman who, um, and I can't find the article right now, um, but a, a woman of Chinese descent or Chinese woman um, who read Pearl Buck and then sort of had a problem with her um, initially, and then went back and read her again and wrote this glowing sort of um, tribute to her in thinking about her um, as a writer, right? And in thinking about her as a, as a person who, um, who in an Asian context, she wanted to embrace, right? Rather than reject, which I find to be personally interesting because next month on the podcast, we're going to read um, Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. And Chinua Achebe is a Nigerian author who, I believe Nigerian author, who um, wrote Things Fall Apart in direct opposition to Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness because he thought Heart of Darkness was too colonial. And so that's very interesting seeing how this, this the, these seeing how two individuals who are part of minority populations, such as it were, in, at least in an American context, um, are handling being written about by uh, individuals who possess a dominant voice in, um, in, in a culture. I think there's a lot of complications that go into her life. I think there's a lot of complications that go into uh, her afterward. Um, and that's why she's, uh, she's worthwhile to, to read. Another question that I have for you before we talk a little bit about the actual book itself. Um, in thinking about books like this <laughs> that are sort of that historical fiction space, um, I know you mentioned that you 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 really enjoy them. We're going to have you on later on this year when we do uh, "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee." Um, where would this book fit in sort of like your arc of thinking around your 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 reading habits? I know you read sales and marketing books because you got to read sales and marketing books, but um, where would this fit for you? Where would you put this book? Like, would you put it in like your your yeah? I got to read that. I'll put that on a shelf. That's really interesting. Or is that more of a, or is it more of like a I can go download this on Scribd and make this work. So, so let me. Uh, that's a really. It's an easy question for me to answer, but I think the answer is going to uh, going to have some explaining to do. Right? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so meaning, uh, if I had if I had nothing else on my agenda to read, this would yeah. have to be one of those books that I would say that's going to be. It's going to be like one of the next five on my list, right? Like yeah. it's going to be on there. The yeah. problem is to get to that next five on my list, she yeah. th th I'd have to be reading for ne the next 25 years straight without, because, because again, like you said, I, I but, because, and I do really hyper-focus on a particular genre mm -hmm. uh, uh, for uh, personal reasons, of course. I really enjoy reading native authors. Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy reading historical fiction that is written by native author authors. And some of them doesn't even have to be fiction, by the way. I'll, I will read some other stuff um, uh, you know, if you read, if you've ever seen uh, Black Elk Speaks, it's mm -hmm. it's basically a interpreted version from John Neidhart, who was originally a poet. He wasn't even really a, a literary person per, per se. Not to say yeah. poetry is not literary, but you know what I mean. He wasn't yeah. writing novels. He wasn't writing. You sure. know, he was a poet. Um, got fascinated by the the culture and just uh, there's a lot of backstory to it. I won't go super detail, 
but this poet ended up meeting black elk and he agreed to let him tell him his story and mm -hmm. write it down interpreted by his son uh mm -hmm. you know by black elk son there's some parts to that that people might say are not exactly fiction uh so when i when you read books like that you know it's it's um but but that i tend to read more than more of that than anything else no, i'll read i'll go out and search for books like by charles eastman or you know uh who was born uh on a native res reservation but was taken from his family put on in one of the carlisle schools okay. grew up in the carlisle schools went to harvard as a and became a doctor went mm -hmm. back to the reservation as a medical doctor and stayed with his people and, and helped his people in a different way took okay. the western education and, and the, anyway yeah. um but but to your point had a, if if just from a simple subject matter mm. i think this would be a, a very good book for like it would be on my list for sure it would be yeah. on my on my must read list um for sure okay cool well we're going to get we're going to turn our attention back to the book back to um the good earth we're going to read a little section here um and hopefully we'll lay out some ideas here um about the land and the value of the land. And I wanna, I wanna have Tom speak a little bit to this because of his um, passion for um, native culture um, and 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 uh, his attachment to that. Um, because there's a there's a there's a hook of an idea in here about the land um, that I want to get to that I think Pearl Buck did an excellent job in. Uh, putting in an in an Asian context, but I actually think it's more universal, even um, even than that. From a good earth, spring seethed in the village of huts, out to the hills and grave lands. Those who had begged could now go to dig in the the small green uh, weeds, dandelions, and shepherd's purse that thrust up feeble new leaves. And it was not necessary, as it had been, to snatch at vegetables here and there. A swarm of ragged women and children issued forth each day from the huts, and with the bits of tin and sharp stones or worn knives, and with the baskets made of twisted bamboo twigs or split reeds, they searched the countrysides and roadways for the food they could get without begging and without money. And every day Olan went out with this swarm, Olan and the two boys. Now, pause for just a second. This is um, after Wang Lung and Olan and his children um, have moved to the city. They've moved off of the land because there is a famine that has occurred in the countryside and they had to move south. Um, they rode a train there, which they didn't understand that. Um, and they wound up living in a, um, hmm, living in a, I'm going to charitably describe it as a hut inside of a wall. Okay. Back to the book. But men must work on and Wang Lung worked as he had before. Although the lengthening warm days and the sunshine and the sudden rains filled everyone with longings and discontents. In the winter, they had worked and been silent, enduring stolidly the snow and ice under their bare straw-sandaled feet, going back and forth to their huts and eating without words such food as the day's labor and begging had brought, falling heavily to sleep, men, women, and children together to gain for that, uh, to gain that for their bodies, which the food was too poor and too scanty to give. Thus it was in Wang Lung's hut, and well he knew it must be so in every other. But with the coming of the spring, talk began to surge up out of their hearts and to make itself heard on their lips. In the evening, when the twilight lingered, they gathered out of their huts and talked together. And Wang Long saw this one and that one of the men who had lived near him and whom through the winter he had not known. 
Had Olan been one to tell him things, he might have heard, for instance, of this one who beat his wife or that one who had a leprous disease that ate his cheeks out of that one who was the king of a gang of thieves. But she was silent beyond the spare questions and answers she asked and gave. And so Wang Lung stood diffidently on the edge of the circle and listened to the talk. Most of these ragged men and nothing beyond what they took in the day's labor and begging. And he was always conscious that he was not truly one of them. He owned land and his land was waiting for him. The others thought of how they might tomorrow eat a bit of fish or of how they might idle a bit or even how they might gamble a little penny uh, or two since their days were all alike, all evil and filled with want. And a man must play sometimes, though desperate. But Wang Long thought of his land and pondered this way and that with the sickened heart of deferred hope, how he could get back to it. He belonged not to this scum which clung to the walls of a rich man's house, nor did he belong to the rich man's house. He belonged to the land, and he could not live with any fullness until he felt the land under his feet and followed a plow in the springtime and bore a scythe in his hand at harvest. He listened, therefore, apart from the others, because hidden in his heart was the knowledge of the possession of his land the good wheat land of his fathers and the strip of rice of rich rice land, which he had bought from the great house. They talked these men always and forever of money of what pence they had paid for a foot of cloth and what they had paid for a small fish, as long as a man's finger or what they could earn in a day. And always at last of what they would do if they had the money, which the man over the wall had in his coffers every day, the talk ended like this. And if I had the gold that he has and the silver in my hand that he wears every day in his girdle, and if I had the pearls his concubines wear and the rubies his wife wears, and listening to all these things they would do if they had these things, Wang Lung heard only of how much they would eat and sleep and of what dainties they would eat that they had never yet tasted and of how they would gamble in, his, in this great tea shop and in that and of what pretty women they would buy for their lust. And above all, how none would ever work again, even as the rich man beyond the wall never worked. Then Wang Lung cried out suddenly, if I had the gold and the silver and the jewels, I would buy land with it, good land, and I would bring forth a harvest from the land. At this, they united in turning on him and in rebuking him. Now, here is a pigtailed country bumpkin who understands nothing of city life and what may be done with money. He would go on working like a slave behind an ox or an ass. And each of them felt he was more worthy to have the riches than was Wang Lung because they knew better how to spend it. But this scorn did not change the mind of Wang Lung. It only made him say to himself, uh, instead of aloud for others to hear, nevertheless, I would put the gold and the silver and the jewels into good, rich lands. And in thinking this, he grew more impatient every day for the land that was already his. The monumental thrust through the good earth is, of course, the earth. It's the land. The land is the thing. I remember when I was growing up, and um, my father was a very blue-collar guy, and I remember when I was growing up, um, my father said to me that the only thing they're not making any more of is land. And so go out and buy that. That was the only investment advice, by the way, my father ever gave me. Because what did he know of stocks and bonds? His wisdom tracks just like Wang Lung's desire and what Pearl S. Buck is writing here, um, probably from direct observation and direct conversation with people she directly knew as a missionary and as a missionary's daughter in China. 
Humans have been farming consistently for the last 5,000 years. We farm even today, even though many of us don't see it, even though many of us live in cities and we are disconnected from where our food comes from. Unless, of course, the food isn't coming and then all of a sudden we're, you know, egg wealthy or chicken wealthy or whatever it is right now in the current time. Farming connects people to land, it connects people to seasons, and it connects them to a sense of something greater than themselves. Uh, and even this point is made through Wang Lung's observation after he gets back to the land. He feels more connected to the land in the country than in the city. And the city, and this is again something biblical, this is the idea of Lot in that ancient story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's nephew, who uh, split the land with Abram and then moved closer and closer to Sodom and Gomorrah before its ultimate destruction. <laughs> Cities are a problem. <laughs> Cities are a place of temptation. Cities are a place of bright lights and fast cars and fast horses and donkeys. And Wang Lung even wound up pulling a, um, pulling a vehicle um, for the foreigners and for the native folks in China and barely getting paid, but it was fast for him, this city life. And he always wanted to return to the country. And the city life while tempting is a place of temptations that can crowd a person's understanding. This is something we have seen in the course of the last two or three years in America, right? Since 2020, right? People are migrating away from crowded cities. They're going back to the land. This is the appeal of suburbs, which is sort of that weird middle ground between the city and the land, you know, a place where you can go get um, a nice meal from a maybe a multicultural selection of restaurants, but then you can also run back to your house and have a big backyard, right? But something is shifting around in America, and um, I see it where I am in, uh, in Texas, and I, I know that, uh, that Tom's probably seen it where he is. Something's moving, something's shifting in the body politic, and it is... It is this thing where human beings are connected to the land in ways that are transcendent, in ways that are theological, in ways that are natural, in ways that defy easy explanation. And then there are the children. So Wang Lung and Olan's two boys um, in the city wind up being thieves and they wind up being degenerates. Um, and there's a horrible moment when they are starving and not making enough money, and which Pearl S. Buck describes where Olan tells Wang Lung to sell his daughter in order to eat. And he recoils in shock and in horror. And at that moment, he decides that they need to get back to the land because the corruption has seeped deeply into their bones. The land, while unforgiving, is still more forgiving than other human beings. For sure. There's all these themes, Tom, in the good earth, the land, the connection to nature, the problems of cities, the appeal of the suburbs, um, the talk that the men have, which will eventually, of course, in the book lead to revolution, <laughs> because there will be young men standing on street corners. Pearl S. Buck describes this beautifully. Young men standing on street corners who will shove papers into Wang Lung's hand, describing the, the coming Marxist revolution in China. And he doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand the characters. Not that he can't read them. He just doesn't understand what they mean. He doesn't understand revolution. He's like, we just, just go get land. It'll be fine. Um, I'm going to ask you the question that I usually ask you. 
what can a leader take from this about connection, about the deeper things, particularly leaders, quite frankly, who are maybe involved in, you know, technology businesses, right? Where you're about as far away from the land as possible. Um, how do human beings get back to being connected with that? And what's the importance of that? Why do leaders need that? Well, I think first you have to kind of understand that this is not the first time this has happened, right? Like, right. You, again, one, one of the things that we've talked about more than once, whether on, on the podcast, off the podcast, but you and I have had several conversations about you know, if if we're gonna if we're gonna take anything from history, it should be lessons, right? Mm -hmm. If we're gonna right. whether and again whether they're right or wrong, whether you like them, whether you don't, like what you know, there's a lot about there's a lot of things that happen in history that we don't like that we mm -hmm. want to make sure never repeat itself. But there are some simpler things, like there are things that you know that you can look at trends and you know this is not the first time this has happened. We've seen this multiple times where where people all of a sudden want to get back into the city and then realize that you're disconnected and they go back to the suburbs. And I mean, you can, if you start, it doesn't, a lot of people think that that started during the, uh, the industrial revolution. It did not. If you go all the way back to the Roman times when they were building aqueducts and trying to bring people closer to the, to the central, you know, centralization of, of resources, then all of a sudden it was not a good idea. Like, you know, so, like this is, this is, there's been an ebb and flow to this for a long time. I think one of the things that happened when, or one of the things that happened, and there are some things that have been slightly different in this last push to go to the city, not right now, not this, what we're experiencing right now where people are starting to leave. But there, if you, if you know anything about some of the, you know, the ecological things, people are trying to, you know, balcony gardens mm -hmm. and, like, so you see some ecological things that they're happening in the cities, rooftop gardens, community gardens, that they realized one of their mistakes when they started to, to drift toward the cities. Now, mm -hmm. that being said, I think that there's other things at play in today's version of leaving the cities, M meaning mm -hmm. with, with when COVID hit, people realized all that congestion just led to a much more rapid expanse of this disease, right? Like it was like, right. a, so, so now they're thinking, okay, well, we separate ourselves a little bit. We can save, we can, we can distance ourselves from, from some of that, you know, speedy, you know. Viral um, transmission. Yeah. Yeah. Transmission of diseases and stuff like that. And then it's a secondary and just an opinion. This, there's no fact behind this at all, yeah, but yeah. just an opinion is like, and then they realize, oh yeah, and we can be more, you know, rooted to the earth. Like this feels yeah. good because we forgot what this was like. And they're like, it became a secondary thing, not necessarily the reason, right? Yeah. Like at least I, 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 there are some parts of this, I think anyway. Well, it's interesting. So my, um, I was listening to uh, my, uh, my pastor uh, was doing a, doing his message on Sunday. I did not hear it. I watched it later on on YouTube. And one of the things he mentioned in there, which relates directly to what we're talking about here, he said, my family has owned this particular number of acreage in Texas for going back to the 1850s. He said, I was Yellowstone before it was Yellowstone, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and he said, now you have people from the city and he was talking about Fort Dallas, Fort Worth, leaving the city and now they're building developments. And the way that the development is advertised as he drives to his ranch that his family has owned for now, I think he's now the fourth generation. Um, the sign that he sees is, you know, you'll get to see a real ranch view. And he's like, that ranch view is my ranch. 
And he's like, that, that gives me a feeling of grieving, a feeling of loss, right? There's a lot of dynamics in that, um, but they all relate back to fundamentally what you're saying about the land. Yeah. They it's all funny you say that land. about your pastor too, because I think about the property that I, that we own right now mm-hmm. um, has been in our family for, I think my kids will be the fifth generation to own it. I think I'm the fourth, okay. right? So, and it's small-ish. Yeah. Um, it's about it's about two acres. So it's not a huge, acre. it's not a ranch, but in the city that we live in, it's unheard of. Like, right. I think the, I think the average lot size in our city, the average lot size is one third of an acre is the mm-hmm. average lot size. Yeah. And we own about two acres, which means we can go out in our backyard and I can still see forest. Like I, I still have tree, like, so it's ve- our back, our property is very, very, very different than all of our neighbors that, yeah. that, that are, that are out here. And I think that matters. I think to the, to my kids that matters. I don't like they want to go off and play in the cities, like you just said. Like yeah, you, yeah, you can go out and get your multicultural scenarios, and you know, and and I live about thirty miles north of Boston, Massachusetts, right? So it's not that far from Boston. It's a half an hour drive into a, a one of our major cities. You yeah. know, and, and it's, Boston's not a big city, so I'm in no uh, you know disillusion or illusion that thinks that you know we're a big city. We're not. We're one of the smaller cities. I think we're number like 23 or 24 in the country or something like that. So we yeah. don't, I know a lot of people think Boston's a big city. It's not. If you've ever <laughs> been to, if you've ever been to New York, LA, Chicago, Boston is tiny. Right? Yeah. So, but compared to the city we live in, it's a big city, right? So we can, yeah. you know, it's, I guess, you know, like I said, we're in the fourth largest city in, in, in Massachusetts. And it's interesting to me to see the difference in dynamics as you drift backward, like, and like, to your point, when you go from Boston proper, which is like the main area of Boston and some of the surrounding cities that are basically like mini, mini Boston, right? Like they, mm-hmm. they're still considered part of the Boston, the Metro Boston area. Yeah. Um, and then you go out a little bit further and it's like, you go from like, you go from skyscrapers and, and bricks to the woods in literally like a blink of an eye. It's right. fascinating to me how quickly it happens. And I think there's a reason for that. Like to your point a few minutes ago, I think it's people real, it's that ebb and flow thing, but I think it's because people realize that that big city has its pros and cons, but the cons are, are not, <laughs> not acceptable, right? Like, not, right. So <laughs> well, I mean, well, I mean, and, and more so even than in a European context, right? So I was reading, yeah. um, was I reading? I was reading a book by uh, Paul Johnson. That's right. Uh, the historian Paul Johnson, who recently um, recently passed away, I think like a month ago, the guy died at like 93. Prolific writer, English writer, by the way, English historian. Love reading his stuff because he has access. He had access to like source documents in Europe about things that happened, you know, back in like 1146 that I never heard of. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this guy's this guy's really good. Yeah. Um, but he wrote a book about the history of America. And one of the things that he said that I didn't, I didn't really understand the depth of what that meant in an American context. But when he explained it again from a European and a British perspective, boom, it makes perfect sense. He said that um, when American, as America was expanding west, and we'll, well, we're going to we're going to talk about this a little bit here. But as America was, as Americans were expanding west, Europeans were expanding west. Um, one of the things that was very important was ownership of the land uh, from their perspective. And so, you know, the average person could own land at like, basically today would be like a hundred bucks an acre 
So you could just go out and buy like up all this land. And that's what people did. They would get in their Conestoga wagon. They'd go from the Appalachians all the way out to name your spot here, set up shop, cordon off a hundred acres, right? Um, use their thousand dollars of savings or their $500 of savings or their $200 of savings. And the first thing they would do is set up a land office. Second thing they do is set up fencing. Third thing they do is start farming. And this was so prevalent that when the United States government tried to come in to corral all those landowners, usually what they would do is they would offer them lower prices on land than what they paid. And they would shoot the government officers and run them out of town. Yeah. <laughs> now, and they wonder how we got the wild, wild, wild. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, there are rules you've got to follow, even if you're from, you could be from that fancy city called Washington, D.C., all you want to be. We're out here. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the thing we're doing out here. Now, there are some dichotomies here. Um, look, my great grandfather was a sharecropper on my mother's side. I'm pretty sure um, there was sharecropping on my father's side. Not quite sure about that. I do know I go far back in my lineage, there's going to be a slave ship somewhere. Like, that's just how it happens. Um, you are very much, you know, you're about, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're very much about, um, I wouldn't say native pride, but you're, you're very much tied into your native culture and your native roots and your native lineage. Sure. We are two people who can look at that through an entirely different kind of cultural lens. My perspective of who gets to work the land. <laughs> <laughs> And your perspective of, hey, look, there's people here before you all showed up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what, what are we doing here, right? Um, those dynamics impact how people engage with the land as well, though. Definitely. And I think, well, I know, I know in China, those exact same dynamics are ha were happening in Western China. You know, the, 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 Han, the, the Han majority, um, I do know this from, from reading some things on Chinese history, the Han majority has always had trouble with minority populations in the land. <laughs> They've always had problems with the Uyghurs and with the Mongolians and with tribes coming back and forth across their land and fighting wars and trying to unite things in a centralized power structure. And then the whole thing falls apart. And, now, and then you have wars and civil wars and strife and all this other kind of stuff. And of course, and we'll talk about this in coming up here, but there's always the specter of famine in the land. Yeah. Um, what can leaders take from this? Like, what is, what, is, what is the core thing here that a leader needs to know? I mean, not necessarily about the land, but what's the core idea here? Is it that people need freedom to, like, put their feet in the sand? Or is it that, what, 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 what's the thing here that leaders can take from this? You know, it's funny that you ask that because, and I know that's all of what this podcast is about, right? It's about, you know, taking these literary, um, you know, these literary pieces and, and turning them into um, education pieces for, for our leaders. I think for, honestly, for me, and, and I think you just made some mentioned like where your perspective comes from one place, my perspective comes from another place. I think from a leader, I think that comment right there should probably be what they're starting to think of. Me meaning, if you're thinking about motivating factors, right, mm -hmm. as a leader, what motivates your people? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most important things to remember and realize is that is that 
that and I, I think about I'm assuming and and anyway that what what motivated him the, the main character of the book versus his two children were very yeah. different right oh yeah oh so yeah as a leader you got to sit there and you have to look at that and say how do I motivate my people I cannot motivate a group of people in one in one push you have to find out individual people have different means different different mentalities different thoughts different like how how things impact them and if you don't know them individually then you're never going to be able to steer the group of them like mm -hmm. right so and but what i think kind of to your point that from the book if i think of any if i think that anything that the book teaches you it's that whole back to basics mentality right yeah you can you can increase your education you can increase you can go you can move into the city you can have access to all this stuff at your fingertips all the but if you really want to know yourself and know your people, you got to get back to the basics. Yeah, you have to be able to take a step back to take two steps forward. Yeah. That kind of stuff, I think, is all over this book. <laughs> oh yeah, well, and and one of the things that Wang Lung, I mean, he kind of, and it's interesting. So there's spots in the narrative where Wang Lung sort of, and again, not an not an educated man, right? Didn't know how to write his own name, right? um there's a whole sequence in the book as he's becoming more wealthy when he returns back to the land he buys up more land from basically what would be the neighborhood mayor he, he bought a bunch of land from the mayor and sort of started expanding it became more powerful and became richer um he sent his sons to get educated so that his sons would be able to read the contracts to him which yeah, right. you know that's that's that 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 trends across humanity, right? I can't do it, but my son will be able to do it. And then my, the blood will be loyal to me. Right. Um, but, um, you know, you get the sense from, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the, the, the intricacies of wealth here, because as Wang Lung got to be more wealthy, um, Wang Lung had more problems, yeah. <laughs> more money, more problems. Money, more problems. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've heard. I, we might have heard that before. <laughs> might have. I might have. I don't know. There might have been a song about that sometime in the nineties. I don't know. <laughs> but um, but nobody told Wang Lung that that was going to be the dynamic, and so you can see him talk about motivating factors. You can see him walking along this path of discovery, step by step. And discovery doesn't come to him all at once in a flash, like it would on a Google search. Discovery comes to him in drips. Like he sees his sons becoming more and more larcenous. And he's like, this has got to stop. We got to get out of the city. But he can't, he can't make that push, right? He can't make that push. And then finally it is, you know, when Olan tells him about selling the daughter that he's like, nope, we're done. That was the push. We can't go down. Well, and also just remember, education and being educated doesn't always come from a book. Correct. That's right. So when you're when you're talking about him learning things about his, that's he's getting an education. It's just not Absolutely. in the in the facet that we're always thinking of. It. You know, it's not a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. It's not, but it is a valuable education. Which is again, oh yeah. When you talk about leaders, that matters, mm -hmm. right? You could mm -hmm. have a room full of people with all all of them could have master's degrees. All of them could have master's degrees in business. All of them could have. But that doesn't mean they're all motivated the same way. That also right. doesn't mean that they're not that their that their education ended with that master's degree and it didn't they didn't learn from other things going on and and, and around them. So oh, yeah. that I think that's an important factors to remember when you're talking about leadership. Yep the the whole Carol Dweck idea of you know the fixed mindset versus the open mindset. You know um, anyway I, I've known several people with a fixed mindset who they had great educational attainment. 
Yeah. <laughs> Great educational attainment. May have met one or two, one or two of those. People. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's talk about that uh, that idea. Not not the idea, but let's talk about let's talk about famine and the and the reality of um the reality of famine in um in the land because that 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 is the thing that that people in the city and 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 honestly in our industrialized time and i'm going to quote some statistics here um in my commentary after i read this piece from michael schellenberger about rates of global famine and rates of global poverty um because of the industrial revolution we have done great things to feed more people in the 20th century but the specter of famine has haunted humanity since time out of mind. Back to the book, back to The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. Wang Lung, sitting at the threshold of his door, said to himself that now surely something must be done. They could not remain here in this empty house and die. In his lean body, about which he daily wrapped more tightly his loose girdle, there was a determination to live. He would not thus, just when he was coming into the fullness of a man's life, suddenly be robbed of it by a stupid fate. There was such an anger in him now as he often could not express. At times it seized him like a frenzy so that he rushed about uh, on his barren threshing floor and shook his arms at the foolish sky that shone above him eternally blue and clear and cold and cloudless. Oh, you two are wicked, you old man in heaven, he would cry recklessly. And for an instant, he was afraid. In the next instant, he would cry sullenly. And what can happen to me worse than what has happened? Once he walked, dragging one foot after another in his famished weakness to the temple of the earth, and deliberately he spat upon the face of the small imperturbable god who sat there with his goddess. There were no sticks of incense now before this pair, nor had there been for many moons, and their paper cloths were tattered and showed their clay bodies through the rents, but they sat there unmoved by anything, and Wang Lung gnashed his teeth at them and walked back to his house groaning and fell upon his bed. They scarcely rose at all now, any of them. There was no need, and fitful sleep took the place, for a while at least, of the food they did not have. The cobs of corn they had dried and eaten, and they stripped the bark from the trees, and all over the countryside, people were eating what grass they could find upon the wintry hills. There was not an animal anywhere. A man might walk for a handful of days and not see an ox, nor an ass, nor any kind of beast or fowl. The children's bellies were swollen out with empty wind, and one never saw in these days a child playing upon the village street. At most, the two boys in Wang Lung's house crept to the door and sat in the sun, in the cruel sun that never ceased its endless shining. Their once rounded bodies were angular and bony now, sharp small bones like the bones of birds, except for their ponderous bellies. The girl never even sat alone, although the time was past for this, but lay uncomplaining hour after hour wrapped in an old quilt. At first, the angry insistence of her crying had filled the house, but she had come to be quiet, sucking feebly at whatever was put into her mouth and never lifting up her voice, her little hollowed face peered out at them all, little sunken blue lips, like a toothless old woman's lips, and hollow black eyes peering. This persistence of the small life in some way won her father's affection. Although she had been round and merry, as the others had been at her age, she would have been careless of her for a girl. Sometimes he looked at her and whispered softly, poor fool, poor little fool. And once when she essayed a weak smile with her toothless gums showing, he broke into tears and took her into his lean, hard hand, her small claw, and held her tiny grasp of her fingers over his forefinger. Thereafter, he would sometimes lift her, all naked as she lay, and thrust her inside the scant warmth 
of his coat against his flesh and sit with her um, by the threshold of the house, looking out over the dry, dead fields. As for the old man, he fared better than any, for if there was anything to eat, he was given it, even though the children were without. Wang Lung said to himself proudly that none should uh, say in the hour of death that he had forgotten his father. Even if his own flesh went to feed him, the old man should eat. The old man slept day in and day out, ate what he was given him, and there was still strength in him to creep about the dooryard at noon when the sun was warm. He was more cheerful than any of them, and he quavered forth one day in his old voice that was like a willow wind trembling among cracked bamboos. There have been worse days. There have been worse days. Once I saw men and women eating children. There'll never be such a thing in my house, said Wang Lung, in extreme horror. You okay? <laughs> it goes on and on like this for at least five <laughs> chapters. Like that was that was the best selection out of the out of like the, the, the those five chapters where it just describes the famine and it's just it's the most brutal thing I've ever read. Um I think of um I think of that line in Genesis, Genesis 12, 10. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Um, I think this is one is really hard for us to wrap our arms around in the in the industrial West, the post-industrial West, even. I mean, even with COVID, even with supply chain problems, this one's hard for us to wrap our arms around. Um, because even now, I mean, we go to our refrigerators, we open our doors. And there's there's food. I'm sure there's food in Tom's refrigerator. Uh, there's food in my refrigerator. Like there were, there have been times over the course of the last couple of years, and I've just been shocked that there is still food in my refrigerator. To be quite honest, um, on the podcast, partially it's because we're Americans. Um, we live in the United States, and we are blessed with having rich earth that is easy to farm, with short supply chains and a large population um, that live on this continent. <clears throat> We don't have to export our food from someplace else. We also have major river valleys that irrigate our land, um, irrigate this country from the Mississippi and the Missouri River and all the tributaries that come out of it. So just by via geography, we are blessed. We also have deep water ports on the East Coast, the West Coast, and in the Gulf of Mexico. And we have arable land. So we're in that nice spot this country is, in the nice spot on the globe where there are temperate days and plenty of rain. Not to say the famine can't come to the United States, um, but if it does, it would be human caused, not because of nature. Nature has blessed us significantly. And we see this in the 1950s, from the 1950s until now, um, Michael Schellenberger has tracked this. Global food production um, has actually increased more in the last 10 years than it did from the 1950s all the way to the 1980s. We've actually tripled global food production. Global wheat prices have been down, making other commodities like rice and corn cheap for many years. And we forget that people around the world eat a lot of wheat, they eat a lot of rice, and they eat a lot of corn. They eat these grains quite directly. And according directly to from Dr. Michael Schellenberger, we already produce enough food for 10 to support at this 10 billion people on the planet. I mean, we just crossed over 8 billion. We could we could support another 2 billion quite comfortably, he says. Um and we, we have a 25% surplus, and more than ever, yields are still rising. 
and because of the industrial revolution gaining access to irrigation fertilizer and modern technology will massively outweigh any impact of climate change or warmer temperatures according to the un and yet we forget that in the majority of human history people starved to death more so than anything else which led to slavery uh, cannibalism as the father mentioned plagues social cultural and political revolutions and of course wars <laughs> endless wars driven by hunger um we now even in the parts of china that pearl buck was writing about and this is weird to think about it but china now has because of the surplus of food production in the latter half of the 20th century china which used to have grinding famine that buck was writing about in the 1930s china now has epidemics of obesity diabetes and heart disease starting in its yeah. older population i was stunned when i went and, saw, and you can go find the numbers you can go search this online this is not me making this up it's absolutely amazing um and with all that we underestimate how hard it is to lead people when they're hungry and how easy it is to be manipulated when we are hungry just look at what happened with all of us with covid even just the threat of being hungry is enough to sometimes push people the question here for leaders Tom, i think is <clears throat> when there's a presence of a genuine crisis how do you keep your head and, and maybe we can reference covid here too although i don't want to make this too much about current events yeah, you know yeah, i want to make yeah. it about broader things you know what i mean yeah a bit of yeah. timeless so famine's timeless uh how do you keep your head how do you how do you do what wang lung did there when his old man said they've been worse times men and women have eaten children and he goes no we're not doing that well i think i think part of it is to remember that um it's during the good times you know we talk about feast or famine like that that phrase has been used millions of times right millions of times yes so, but but from a from a leadership perspective, you think of I think of feast of feast or famine as in good times and bad, or tighten the belt with budgets or you know like your this budgetary thing. You know mm -hmm. feast or famine comes to do with you know um, you know disposable income when it comes to your budget, right? Or you know laying people off or uh, you know whatever whatever feast or famine I issue you have in the company. I think one of the things that that uh, you I think not reacting to it at the time at the moment is probably the easiest thing i can think of right and, and what i mean by that is and i'm not saying don't react to it i'm saying mm -hmm. your reaction to it should be well thought out ahead of time yeah meaning like you know we, we've got these ebbs and flows of you know money or discretionary funds or whatever you, you, even like a workforce if you're in if you're in the if you were in a business where uh take like locally here landscaping right in boston we're not landscaping in December, January, February. No. But if you're a landscaping person that works for a landscaping company, or if I'm a lands, if I own a landscaping company, how I manage that ebb and flow of personnel matters, right? Mm -hmm. But I can't address it when I I'm just gonna lay 20 people off in November and hope for the best. Right. You know what I mean? Like so I think I think being able to during the good times being able to have foreshadowing and seeing what's happening, what's going, you, the inevitability of what happens and being able to say, 
here's how we're going to plan for this, this, and this. If this happens, if our revenue dips, if we have to lay people off, if we have to, here's how we're going to handle it. Here's how we're going to, that way, when it happens, let's say for, if it never happens, great, good for you. You're one of the 1%, right? Right. You're probably one of the 1% of company leaders that never have to deal with a massive layoff or never have to deal with, you know, revenue going and, you know, tanking stock, stock values going down. And if you're a small mom and pop, that ebb and flow of, like I said, like a landscaper, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but if you if you do if you are ready for it, then I'm a really big proponent of not having big surprises in life unless it comes from my wife, <laughs> right? Like, meaning yeah. she's gonna surprise me with a vacation I didn't think of. She's gonna surprise me with a gift I would have, you know, that I love. But outside of that, yeah. outside of gift giving and whatnot, there's not a lot of surprises in my life. I'm, yeah. I'm a pretty like you know, what if kind of guy, right? Like, and, yeah. and you know, so what if I, what if I got fired tomorrow? What if I got laid off tomorrow? How would I be able to afford my mortgage? You know, like things like that keep, would keep me up at night if I wasn't planning for it. Well, the same rules apply in a company for me. Mm-hmm. I'm always thinking about like, things are really good right now, but the what ifs, what yeah. happens if next month we don't hit that number? What if I have to lay off 10 people? What if I, how do I manage that? How do I handle that? How do I make sure, how do I mitigate the losses? How do I make sure that that stuff happens in such a free, like such a uh, seamless process that it doesn't cripple the company in the process? Right. I I think that's part, I think that's part of it. And I think that's kind of what Wang Lung's talking about here, right? Like we're never going to see that in my house. Well, why? Well, because he's going to make sure it doesn't happen. He's going to have some sort of plan for that, right? Like, yeah, I think, I think that's part of it here, which is, we we kind of think our leaders are always two steps ahead when they're not always two steps ahead. <laughs> but I think they yeah. need to be. I think they should yeah. be. I think if they're doing their job right, we should be. Th- I, you know, I, I take this the housing market for us right now and how it, it's starting to go in the it's starting to go dipping a little bit. Well, it's the the cause and effect here. The housing market is dipping because the federal government decided to raise the interest rates. The, the mm-hmm. interest rate raise was a direct impact of what we just had with COVID going on, and they lowered the interest rate so people weren't getting crippled. Well, did they know that was going to happen? Did they plan for that interest rate to rise? I think they did, but I don't think they planned for it to rise quite as much as it had to. <laughs> right? You know, like it's, they, inter- it's interesting we're talking about famine because there's also laws of nature that go along with economics. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I want to be very clear. I'm not laughing at anybody's pain here. If no, you are in a mortgage, not. like that you can't afford, if you're in a situation where like, I know in major cities like Boston, um, Dallas, Fort Worth, right up the road from me, um, you know, uh, uh, New York city where I just came from, like, I know rents have like hit the ceiling and the second, hit the, yeah. Second rents hit the ceiling. Then foreclosures are going to start happening because that's usually the next domino to fall. Um, you know, the arrogance of modern leadership sometimes, I shouldn't say leadership, the arrogance of modern scientific management is that, oh, well, that's fine. We'll just tweak this thing over here because we're smarter than the forces. And you're not smarter. You're not smarter than the sun or the rain not falling down. And you're not smarter than interest rates, not like, you know, needing to be raised. Like you're just not smarter than certain economic or natural forces. They exist for a reason. Right. Like you could argue all you want with gravity, if you step out of a plane with no parachute, <laughs> gravity wins. <laughs> every it's undefeated. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> gravity has a million to zero like <laughs> wind streak. Like you're not, you're not gonna be the one that defeats gravity. It's it's just it's not gonna happen. Right. And so I don't I I I get what you're saying about leadership, needing to plan ahead for gravity. I think I think it's those leaders that just kind of let the status quo stand when things are doing well that right. really suffer when they don't. Yeah. Right. So it's it's always the leaders, you know, in in it's always the leaders that are are saying it's the the the, the sky is falling kind of people, right? Where yeah. like things are great right now and everybody around them is going, "Hey boss, this is awesome, this is great." And the boss is going, "Yeah, but yeah, but." Yeah. Like those are the leaders that have a tendency to not let that cliff happen. Like mm -hmm. they, you know, it's it's like it's one of those things where, you know, I, I just had a friend of mine who owned a company and he, most of people in his industry are laying people off and he is not because he planned for this. And I went, I go, yeah, but you're personally, you're suffering. He goes, no, I'm not. I planned for this. So his profit margins are going down, but he's not laying anybody off because, because that's, he, he planned that's the that. culture of the company that he wanted. He right. wanted to protect the culture of his company versus the the profit the profit line. Now that don't get me wrong, this guy's very well. He he could use to lose a few bucks. I'm not worried about him. But but most people in his situation would just lay people off and keep the buck, right? Like right. that's. Yeah. But in his brain, the way he, his mind worked, the culture of his company was important not only to him, but he felt that from an outsider looking in, the culture of his company mattered to the public. Like. Anybody looking at his company from the outside looking in, he wanted it to matter. So he planned for this downfall of the, like the downturn, I shouldn't say downturn. downfall, sorry, but yeah. the downturn in the economy and the way that the, 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 these, you know, all this, all these dynamics that are hitting us all at once. Yeah. He was ready for it. He was ready yep. for it. So he yep. wasn't, he wasn't panicking. He wasn't worried about it. He's got these weird tasks that he puts his people on now that have nothing to do with their job, but they don't care because they have a job. Because they have a job. And yeah, a of, and a lot of people in their industry are being laid off. So, you know, he's, and, and he's, I guarantee you that's going to gain him back tenfold someday. Oh, I yeah. just have this feeling that when 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 those employees realize what he did for them and then the time comes for them to really start working hard again, because now the business is back, mm -hmm. they're not going to think twice about it. They're right. not going to think twice about it. Yeah. He's going to he's yeah. he's basically guaranteed his workforce for the next ebb and flow. So and flow. yeah, yeah. That's that's genuine leadership. That's genuine leadership. Back to the book, back to the good earth. Um, we are kind of crossing over the um crossing over the divide here and uh turning turning the corner. So I want to talk about speaking of rich guys, I want to talk about Wang Lung um and his cycle going from being um from being a, a farmer to being a rickshaw puller. Uh, to surviving a famine, uh, which is a miracle by in and of itself, going back to his land and then becoming wealthy, because there's there's things that you don't learn about wealth until you have wealth that no one can tell you uh, until you actually have it. Now Wang Long became sick sick with the sickness of which is greater than any man can have. 
He had suffered under labor in the sun, and he had suffered under the dry, icy winds of the bitter desert, and he had suffered from starvation when the fields would not bear, and he had suffered from the despair of laboring without hope upon the streets of a southern city. But under none of these did he suffer as he did now under this slight girl's hand. Every day he went to the tea shop. Every evening he waited until she would receive him, and every night he went in to her. Each night he went in, and each night again he was the country fellow who knew nothing, trembling at the door, sitting stiffly beside her, waiting for her signal of laughter, and then fevered, filled with a sickening hunger, he followed slavishly, bit by bit, her unfolding until the moment of crisis when, like a flower that is right for plucking, she was willing that he should grasp her wholly. Yet he never could grasp her wholly, and it was this which kept him fevered and thirsty, even if she gave him his will of her. When Olan had come to his house, it was health to his flesh, and he lusted for her robustly as a beast for its mate, and he took her and was satisfied, and he forgot her and did his work content. But there was no such content now in his love for this girl, and there was no health for her in him. There was no health in her for him. At night, when she would have no more of him, pushing him out of the door petulantly with her small hands suddenly strong on his shoulders, his silver thrust into her bosom, he went away hungry as he came. It was as though a man dying of thirst drank the salt water of the sea, which, though it is water, yet dries his blood into thirst and yet greater thirst, so that in the end he dies, maddened by his very drinking. He went into her, and he had his will of her again and again, and he came away unsatisfied. All during that hot summer, Wang Lung loved this girl. He knew nothing of her whence she came or what she was. When they were together, he said not a score of words, and he scarcely listened to the constant running of her speech light and interspersed with laughter like a child's. He only watched her face, her hands, the postures of her body, the meaning of her wide, sweet eyes waiting for her. He had never enough of her, and he went back to his house in the dawn, dazed and unsatisfied. The days were endless. He would not sleep anymore upon his bed, making a pretense of heat in the room, and he spread a mat under the bamboos and slept there fitfully, lying awake to stare into the pointed shadows of the bamboo leaves, his breast filled with a sweet, sick pain he could not understand. And if any spoke to him, his wife or his children, or if Ching, that's the uh, neighbor who he hired to work his fields, came to him and said, the waters will soon recede, and what is there that we should prepare of seed? He shouted and said, why do you trouble me? And all the time his heart was like to burst because he could not be satisfied of this girl. Thus, as the days went on and he lived only to pass the day until the evening came, he would not look at the grave faces of Olan and of the children, suddenly sober in their play when he approached, nor even at his old father who peered at him and asked, what is this sickness that turns you full of evil temper and your skin is yellow as clay? And as these days went past to the night, the girl Lotus did what she would with him. When she laughed at the braid of his hair, although part of every day he spent in braiding and in brushing it, and said, now the men of the South do not have these monkey tails. He went without a word and had it cut off, although neither by laughter or scorn had anyone been able to persuade him to it before. When Olan, his wife, saw what he had done, she burst out in terror. You have cut off your life. But he shouted at her, and shall I look like an old-fashioned fool forever? All the young men of the city have their hair cut short. Yet he was afraid in his heart of what he had done, and yet so he would have cut off his life if the girl Lotus had commanded it or desired it because she had every beauty which had ever come into his mind to desire in a woman. As we mentioned earlier, There was a song in the early 90s 
Notorious B.I.G. Mo money, mo problems. <laughs> no one told Wang Lung that when he got a little silver, he got a little food, started buying a little land, started being respected, that he was going to have all of these appetites. And that the more money he came across, the more problems he would see. Wang Long was affected by the same sickness that affects an entrepreneur, an athlete, or a high-powered executive who struggles for years to get quote-unquote success, hits the quote-unquote golden bell, and then twiddles their thumbs, not knowing what to do after that. The way to solve this, and by the way, Wang Lung did come up with a solution to this problem. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give you the, the solution because the book was written in 1938, so there's no spoiler alerts here. Uh, he brings the, the woman Lotus into his house along with the woman's maid who used to be in the mayor's house in his town uh, along with his uncle's wife who facilitates that exchange. He basically buys himself a concubine and this creates more problems for him. You don't say. <laughs> no one told Wang Lung. Ah, <laughs> oh, God. And so the way, someone should have told Wang Lung that the way to solve this problem, the way to solve this, this, this restlessness, right? And by the way, the restlessness came when he couldn't farm the land. So the land was under um, under flood, right? And the waters would not recede. And so... He had plenty of food, plenty of stores because he had prepared against the future. The famine taught him well. He learned that lesson, but he didn't learn the lesson of what to do with the silver in idle hands. And so he brings this unsettledness into his house without finding a new mission, a new purpose, or a new beginning. Tom, you have some experience of this hanging around rich guys. <laughs> Give us some wisdom here. How do. I'm not nearly as wealthy as I need to be. <laughs> so how do I avoid the mo money, mo problems trap? Well, and by the, way, thing... by the way, I already know the one lesson. I'm not bringing a concubine into my home. I already know well, that yeah, one. Yeah, let's, let's, let's stop that. Let's, let's stop that right there. Like that is a bad idea. <laughs> with a capital B and an ad and an idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that ah. I don't see that word. I mean, literally when he did it, I, I, literally, I was literally reading it and I thought, Oh dear God! Don't do this! Oh, don't, don't do, do it! it. Yeah. Oh, don't do it! Don't do it! Any, anyone, anyone ahead and did it. And to Pearl S. Buck's credit, she writes about this without judgment or condemnation or Christian judgment or Christian condemnation. She just writes it as a thing that is happening to this person out of a series of logical decisions they are making, moving the plot forward. Um, again, one of the reasons why it won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1938. Go ahead. Yeah. How do you, how do you avoid rich guy traps? I, I think mean, of Tom Brady right now, like he's in a rich guy trap. Like Tom Brady, my God, he's in a rich guy trap. The, the only thing I could think of, and, and it's funny you say that, like when you're talking about like, you know, athletes that get these big contracts and like yeah. people that are wildly successful, get all this money. The thing I find fascinating is, and I don't know the actual statistic. I, I wish I had known this question would pop up because I'd go look at it. Yeah. But there, there is a certain percentage and it's not as low as you might think. Mm -hmm. of professional athletes that end up broke oh yeah oh i know it, right like yeah so i think so i think part of it is like like that that whole rich guy trap is first of all stop thinking you're rich because no matter how much money you have right now it might not be there tomorrow like you, you again correct you gotta hold that that we just talked about this a few minutes ago plan for the future right plan for the next step if you if your silver is idle so to speak as wang lungs was Mm -mm. are there other ways to invest it can you go look at other like there's other things to do with your money that you can go play around with 
it doesn't have to be it it doesn't have to be destructive right right like so i think i think part of it is like is in a lot of times people these overnight successes right like i start a company i'm making a little bit of money and now i sell that company and now all of a sudden i have a hundred million dollars sitting in the bank what do i do because that's right. another thing it's not just athletes that this happens to it's right. even entrepreneurs that that go out and they build these great companies they sell them they get all this money and now they don't know what to do well guess what they just spend the money right because they have yeah. no idea how to actually manage the money there's right. no and just nobody ever tells them about that to your point with Wang Lung. Nobody ever tells them that you have to not just go make the money, not go become rich. You have to figure out what to do with it. Once you get there, you have to plan for this and then plan for the bad part, plan for the, it, you really, it, it, I guess it, the only thing I can think of is surround yourself with people that know better than you. I think that's yeah. really a good lesson to learn here too, is that just because you are quote unquote, the leader does not make you the smartest person in the room. Yeah. Doesn't make yeah. you the smartest person in the company. Doesn't make you the smartest person in your country club of wealthy people. Well, so, and it's and it's easy to sort of knock Wang Lung because his thing was okay. I got the money, and now I've got this 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 desire for this woman, right? Um, which he didn't previously had. He he wasn't a gambler. He wasn't uh, well because without know, the money, he couldn't go to those places. Right, exactly. He couldn't right? go to the so tea that's, room. Yeah. That's right. He was embarrassed to walk in. Yeah, and that's so very- lesson number one: don't change your personality because you got money. Don't go to those money. places. <laughs> right. Don't 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 go to Hooters for wings, kids. Exactly. <laughs> go buy an antique car and tweet. You know, to work on it. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Buy buy a boat, something I don't know. My boat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, but that's that's the one thing. And then the other thing that you notice is that, and and Pearl Buck does an excellent job of describing this as well. She she talks about him being captured by this unquenchable desire as a sickness, and I think that's an accurate description. Um, it is a sickness of wealth, and I think that to the degree that political progressives have a have a valid argument against capitalism it is indeed this argument that they raise that there is a sickness in wealth uh now they don't attach it necessarily to a morality or to an ethic they just say that there's a sickness there right and again it's a perfectly valid point right i think you have to attach it to something else but i think it's a perfectly valid point on the other hand political conservatives um have an equally valid point in that there is no glory in poverty. Uh, Jay-Z infamously said, you know, how can I help? I can't help the poor if I'm one of them. I got rich and gave back. To me, that's the win-win, right? Yeah, so this is that idea of capitalism, right? You need a system that can allow a Wang Lung to rise to the point where he can start having Biggie Smalls problems or at least have the option to have them, right? And I think that that's the key thing out of, out of this is, how do you build a system that allows people to have the option? And by the way, um, in the book, Revolution Comes, right? When those options are taken away. Um, and Wang Lung has an interesting little turn there where he becomes, no, not he becomes, he becomes viewed by others as, 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 as the very same rich man that is deserved of having everything taken away from him. And no one knows where he came from or who he was. Right. And that's an interesting turn in the book as well. Um, that is uh, in this, that is described in the story of Wang Lung. Okay. As we close here, um, uh, same question, same wrap up we usually have. How do we stay on the path? What do we, what do we take from the good earth? 
Um, you know, I mean, we've got we've got a story here about a man who goes through cycles, right? You talked about the cyclical nature of history. There's cycles in a man's life, right? Um, and he's cycling through these various things that are driven, various events that are driven by natural phenomenon and are driven by his own choices. Then you have um, the fact that his desires um, are also driving the narrative and pushing the idea forward. Um, the motto for 2023 on the podcast is take action, right? So how do we get, how do leaders take action after reading The Good Earth? What do they take from that, Tom? Well, I, I think of a, a phrase that I heard when I was a kid. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was my grandmother um, that, that always used to tell me, I'm going to modify it just a little bit for, for, for this purpose. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the quote was, you know, uh, the quote, the, what she used to say was, uh, plan for the worst, hope for the best, and take what comes, right? But for this purpose, I would just elaborate a little bit and say, plan, you know, expect the worst and plan for it. Make sure you're ready for the worst. Hope what come, or hope for the best, but don't just take the, like strive for the best, yeah. make plans and try to be the best. When it comes to taking what comes, be ready for what comes. Yeah. So it's, it's a matter of, you know, again, the, the old, the old saying is, uh, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best, take what comes. But I think we can do better than that with that in mind. Yeah. I think we can do better than that, which is, you know, you you should plan for the worst when things are good. Make sure you understand and know what you're going, you know, what you're going to do when things take a turn. But that that hope for the best should be more like plan for the best. Make sure you're taking actions and and put and when you're putting these plans into place, make sure you stick to them. Don't deviate just because of the something gets tough, right? The tough when the whole the tough get going, you know, when the tough that that's true. When things get really really tough. The, the the best of the best strive to the top like they mm -hmm. that's where the, you rise and the people that are not true leaders crumble mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so the, and, and then take what comes because it's going to happen whether you like it or not things are going to move that cyclical nature of economy the cyclical nature of man the cyclical nature of, of the of the earth you know we have four seasons for a reason like there yeah. this is going to happen whether you want it to or not no right. matter how much you fight it about fighting gravity no matter how much you fight it these things are going to happen so make yeah. sure they happen with make sure you're ready for it make sure you're planning for it make sure you're make sure you have some sort of force force thought like and, and and have contingency plans that's the other part too right like if you because things happen sometimes they don't go exactly the way you thought but if they're close you can make an adjustment there's a book um there's a book called the slight edge mm -hmm. i think everybody should read it it's it's a book about basically make it, it, it. There's one particular part of the book that I always tell people the easiest way to understand the terms uh, the 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 uh, the concept of the book. He talks about a, a situation where we put a we put a uh, we put a lunar module on the moon, right? Mm -hmm. We sent them we sent man to the moon. Ninety three percent of the time that that spaceship was not on course. It spent ninety three percent of its time adjusting slight adjustments to make sure that it hit the moon. It was only on course 7% of the time. So if you think of that in the course of your business, the slight adjustments to make sure that you come back to where you go matter, but you need to be ready for them. You need to be able to start planning for that and see it and make sure you're making the adjustments as you go. Don't make the adjustment after it happens. Yeah. Don't make, don't make the adjustment when it's too late. Make yeah. the adjustment as you go and as it happens, that way you're ready for whatever comes. Yeah, yeah. 
Words of wisdom, absolutely. And uh, we'll uh, we'll find the author and a link to the Slight Edge uh, and stick that in the show notes below the uh, below the player. I was um, trying to see if I had it on my shelf over there, but it's not. It's upstairs. <laughs> that, that's good. We'll we'll put it in the show notes below the player. We'll uh, we'll grab it because uh, it is uh, we're a book podcast and we want you to read all kinds of books because there's all kinds it's of. It's a lessons. great book. People will like it. It's an easy read too, by the way. It's a very awesome. easy read. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, we will definitely put that in there. Um, I would only maybe add to what Tom said this, um, uh, leaders stick to principles. I, 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 I think that there is something we could take from Wang Lung, who, by the way, is not written as a Christian character, even though you would think that he would be written as the Christian hero by a Christian missionary. Ah, he is written as a man who is walking through this world, as I've already said, buffeted by natural forces, social forces, cultural forces, political forces that he does not understand. And Wang Lung stuck to his principles. He maybe couldn't articulate them, uh, maybe couldn't figure out what they were um, if press, probably couldn't even, not even probably couldn't write them down, right? But he knew he had them. He knew he had principles. Principles are not opinions. Um, principles are ideas, concepts that have stood the test of time and that have been applied throughout time to anybody in any particular set of circumstances across the wide span of human history. So um, you get out what you put in. That's a principle. <laughs> it's been applied throughout time. Um if you steal from others, they will more likely than not steal from you. That's a principle throughout time. You don't get away with anything. That's a principle throughout time. <laughs> By the way, I've never seen anybody get away with anything in my life. That's a principle. Here's an opinion. An opinion is, you know, uh, maybe we should try shifting around our thoughts on 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 uh, on taxes because maybe we could take a little more from these people and take a little more from those people and it'll give people meaning. That's an opinion, backed up by policy, but it's an opinion, right? Here's another example of an opinion. I don't think that that guy who throws a ball or that woman who hits a ball should get paid that amount of money when a teacher gets paid this amount of money. That's an opinion. It's not a principle. Principles go deeper. They cut to the bone. And leaders stick to principles. They know what they are. They can articulate them, but they stick to those principles. Like in the example that Tom was giving of his friend who has kept his people in spite of the economic downturn that comes from a principle. When times get tough, the first things to go usually are people's opinions that they have gussied up and pretended are principles, but in reality were just opinions. When you work for a company that says people are our greatest strength, you will see when times get tough, if that's an opinion or principle. The leaders that are worth following are the leaders that are principled. The leaders that are worth following are the ones that know the difference between an opinion and a principle and are very clear about what that difference is. Even if they have to sacrifice everything, even their own wealth, and sometimes even their own lives to uphold that principle. 
And that's what we learn from the good earth, along with many other things about culture, getting back to the basics that we talked about on the podcast today, not being led down the path of your own appetites <laughs> and fighting those in order to lead better. The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck is a great book for examining those principles through the lens of a story of a simple country peasant who rises up the social hierarchy and social ladder, and just as Tom said, cyclically then goes back and falls right back down again. The cycles are what is worth thinking about and what is worth pursuing as a leader, and that is also the principle. And well, that's all I've got for today. You got anything else to add, Tom? I think I'm good, my friend. With that, we're out. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red Podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red Book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan. This is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.